Welcome to the Well Woman Show, where we use intersectional feminism, mindfulness, leadership, and strategy to support smart women to change the world without anxiety, insecurity, and burnout. On the show, we challenge the status quo and support you to unlearn harmful messages that keep you playing small so you can activate your superpowers and live with joy, confidence, and ease. I'm your host, Giovanna Rossi. Hello, hello, well women. Welcome back to the show. And today on the show, it's very exciting. We have Marianne Williamson joining us. Many of you know her work. She's a best-selling author, a political activist, and spiritual thought leader who's running for the Democratic nomination for president of the United States in the 2024 election cycle. Now, this isn't her first run at public office. She ran for Congress in California, and she ran for the nomination uh, for president also uh, in the previous election. So for over three decades, Marianne Williamson has been a leader in spiritual and religiously progressive circles. She's the author of 15 books, four of which have been New York Times bestsellers, number one. And she founded the Project Angel Food nonprofit organization, which has delivered more than 14 million meals to ill and dying homebound patients since 1989. The group was created to help people suffering from ravages of HIV AIDS. She also has worked throughout her career on poverty, anti-hunger, and racial reconciliation issues. In 2004, she co-founded the Peace Alliance, and supports the creation of a U.S. Department of Peace. Williamson ran unsuccessfully, as I mentioned, for the Democratic nomination for president in 2020. On the show today, we discuss all kinds of topics, including her policy position on the Economic Bill of Rights and the child care and women in the workforce. We also talk about the state of politics and how challenging it is to run for president as kind of the underdog. You can go to wellwomanlife.com slash 321show for more information. And The Well Woman Show is thankful for support from The Well Woman Academy at wellwomanlife.com slash academy. Join us in the academy for community mindfulness practices and strategy to live your well woman life. I'm speaking with Marianne Williamson this morning. Welcome to the show. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to have you on the show. And uh, I just want to start, um, Marianne, with asking you, where are you? But also, who are you in the world today? Well, the first one is a much simpler answer. I'm in Las Vegas, Nevada. And uh, who I am is a, obviously, to ask anybody, especially someone who has lived as long as I have, who we are is a big one. Maybe you could make that as a little bite-sized pieces for me. How do you identify in the world right now? I'm an American woman. I'm an author. I'm a teacher. I'm a lecturer. I'm a Jew. And I'm a candidate for president. Yes, you are. So I definitely want to talk to you about that. And I, I want to ask you, on this show, I interview women leaders who are really disrupting systems and challenging status quo. <clears throat> and and you've chosen to do that by running for president. And I, I think it's really interesting to attempt to disrupt a system while also having to play by the rules of the system in order to, to be in it. How are you managing that? And what is your plan? Like, what's your plan of attack here? My only plan of attack is truth-telling, radical truth-telling, as I understand it, which in today's world particularly is the most disruptive thing you can do. 
when you're talking about politicians who have to play by the rules, that really applies more to people who are already in office. The rules that I'm asked to uh, play by as a candidate, however, the people who are declaring those rules are the ones who are being exposed as hypocrites. The DNC, for instance, uh, refusing to allow uh, Robert Kennedy and myself to debate the president. That's a ridiculous rule. It's undemocratic. We're both running as well. Other than that, the rules of running, there there aren't, except the rules that are sort of implied and held in place by almost invisible threads because of the political media industrial complex who determine in so many cases and in so many ways who gets heard, who gets to be on mainstream media, who gets the CNN town hall, who gets to be on media, the press. And even more importantly, it's not just the invisibilization and the erasure. It's also the manipulation of narrative about who a person is. It's vicious out there. It's very corrupt and it's very bad for America. So your strategy must be to try to gain back the dialogue and be included in in the debates. Well, you you begin to understand that you they it, it, listen if they've locked the door. It's you, at a certain point you stop knocking. But what you can do is go around the house. Gen Z doesn't care whether or not you have a, a CNN town hall. They care whether or not you're on TikTok. A lot of independent media people who they're not watching those, you know, it's, 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 it's a new world struggling to be born. And there is an old world that's sort of falling apart in front of our eyes. The key to being able to override the erasure and so forth lies in money, most of which I do not have. That's, that's a problem. But it's not insurmountable if you reach enough people. And in the last New York Times poll, I was only seven points behind the president among Gen Z. This is still early enough in the process. My experience is that, and this goes back to what you were talking about, disruption. There is a new alignment taking place in this country. It's a new political alignment that I don't think either major political party is prepared for or even acknowledges yet because they're within a bubble. And that new alignment is much less left versus right. And much less about people figuring out what's really going on in this country. The oppressor is not your left. The oppressor is not your right. The oppressor is above you. The real dichotomy is between those who have power versus those who don't, versus those who have easy access to capital versus those who are just struggling to get by. Now, there's truth to what I said. And I believe that, as as I was saying before, truth is the ultimate disruptor. You just have to find enough ways for people to hear you, because once they hear me, we're doing just fine. Mm, yeah. So you do need to be heard. And what can you point to, or what, what do you, what would you like to point to that can reassure American voters that you have the ability to disrupt this and build? So disrupting and dismantling while building at the same time. Well, the first thing I would point to is that I'm doing it now. All of the people who say they want change, where are they? Those who say they want progressive change, are they running? Why am I here? Why do, where are they? They're endorsing, or at least passively endorsing Biden, saying that's how they're going to disrupt the system and push him left. The system is, is showing itself right now. So first of all, the fact that I'm doing this, and trust me, the insults I take on a daily basis, the mockery, the derision, the, the mischaracterization of who I am, 
and what I've done for the last 40 years of my life. I think for anybody who wants to like step back and look at that, you know, this is people say you do it for vanity. What could be worse for your vanity or for your ego? It's an assault on everything that you are. People who don't even know you, people who haven't read your books, talking about how awful they are, blah, blah, blah. So that's number one. I'm doing it now. Number two, I have been around Washington enough and I've been around the most powerful people in the world enough actually to know that the people in America, and this is fostered by a lot of media, they have this Wizard of Oz illusion. He's just a man behind a curtain. So when you say, how would you know what to do? It's just a bunch of people who sit around and talk. And some of them have good ideas and some of them have bad ideas, but even the best ideas are usually shot down because somebody says insurance companies wouldn't let us do it or pharmaceutical companies wouldn't let us do it or defense contractors wouldn't let us do it. It's no more mysterious than that. And the other half of their time, they're on the phone raising money. Now, the illusion that they weave is that only people who have had years of experience driving the car that drove us into this ditch. And we are in a ditch. The state of our economy for the 80% of Americans, state of our environment, state of our democracy. Neither the Democrats nor the Republicans have anything to like be self-congratulatory right now in terms of the last 50 years of American history. But they say that only somebody who knows the car that drove us into this ditch should possibly be considered qualified to drive us out of it. And I reject that. And then they say, well, you're not a political car mechanic. The problem is not that we don't have enough political car mechanics in Washington. The problem is that we're on the wrong road. Hmm. So how do I have what it takes? Listen, the president has a lot of power. I wouldn't have a magic wand and you don't want the president to have a magic wand. But uh, I would name things that we all know to be true, but that somehow there's this official conspiracy to not mention, such as one in four Americans living in medical debt, such as the highest poverty rate, such as less than half of our seniors living on $25,000 a year, such as 1.3 million people rationing their insulin, such as the fact that the majority of Americans, 70%, report living with chronic economic anxiety, such mm. as $50 trillion that's been transferred over the last 50 years to, to a small group of Americans. And, 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 and Americans been told, well, do that, give all that money to the stockholder and the CEO class, because then they'll create jobs. These people's business model is not job creation, it's job elimination. And it's worker exploitation. And people on the left and the right are figuring that that out. So you need a president like Roosevelt, who would be my role model, who goes in there and lays it down. And when that president is vehemently opposed, as he was, as I would be, I would, as he did, call them economic royalists and say, I welcome their hatred. I would govern in a way that no one could even consider governing if you were even thinking of running for a second term. Yeah. But I'm not one of them. And you make your executive orders and you make your appointments and you use your bully pulpit and there's a lot you could do. And I would do it. And do you have an example of where you have been able to pull collaborators together, partners, and and build something? I founded an organization called Project Angel Food, which was set up to be a Meals on Wheels uh, service to people, home, homebound people living with AIDS and other challenging illnesses. That was in 1989. That organization has now served over 16 million meals. And I was the co-chair of the capital campaign. Uh, that I was in Los Angeles last week for a ceremony, raised $50 million. I'm a manifester. The idea that, you know, 
somebody, you know, I, I'm sorry, but with all due respect, somebody who's had my career, written 16 books, sold millions of books, done as much as I have, has done as much as the former mayor of Fort, Fort whatever Indiana was. I yeah. mean, hello, Mr. Buttigieg. I've had as, I've done as much as you have. How do you handle, you know, having written so many books and been on the New York Times bestseller list so many times, and and you have sort of a fan base um, that reads those books and follows you. And then you go into the presidential campaign and you don't have that same type of momentum and following. How do you handle that personally? Or are they transferring over to, to follow your presidential campaign as well? No, you know, it's been a real problem for me on a political level. Many uh, from my spiritual audience say, I love her spiritual books, but I just wish she'd never mentioned politics. And many people from the political world say, I really like her politics, but this God stuff she has, I don't like. So I've, it's, it's almost something to, you know, <laughs> there's something to offend some, everybody. But if people take a deeper look uh, among the, the spiritual audience, all I'm doing is extending everything I write about to collective to the collective as well as the individual. That just as you, if you want to heal your life, you have to know what your principles are and stand on them and try to be a good person. I'm just saying that about the country. Our, yeah. uh, the mode of capitalism, it's a kind of malevolent strain that is in charge now. There's soullessness here. We need to get back our ethical center. You put health, safety, and well-being of people before corporate profits. So I'm just extending everything I've talked about into the collective. In terms of the political, you know, it's interesting talking about as a woman and all of that, there's an irrational animus here. And I can't put my finger on it. I think it's partly the spiritual, but even that makes no sense. Martin Luther King was a Baptist preacher. Reverend Al Sharpton ran for president. So that makes no sense. I think there's a deeper misogyny in this country than, than, than I realized. And I think that a woman who has run for, has been a congresswoman or something, well, she's played the game and she has been a good girl on some level. This country has, and I don't even think it's this country, I think the species, <laughs> we're not evolved past a real uh, projection onto women who, like, where did she get that power? And what's by what authority is she saying these things? And what would she do with all that? I mean, it's, it's almost like we're in the Middle Ages here. She must be crazy. She must be a kook. She must be dangerous. She must be mean. And this is seriously, do you think we were talking witch burnings here? Um, archetype. Well, it's fascinating, although it's not fun to be the recipient of all that. Right, right. And it is fascinating to see how most people can't actually conceptualize big change because they're operating within their own system of barriers and obstacles. And, and so they can't actually visualize it with you. So how about, I'd love to spend just a few minutes having you actually share, like, what is your vision? And for listeners to really understand where you're coming from, especially because the New York Times poll you just mentioned does show your numbers, you know, creeping up towards the other primary candidate, Robert Kennedy Jr. And, and I think that's interesting and, and your numbers with Gen Z and that. So what are you, what, what are you wanting to do? And um, how, how do you want to kind of explain that to listeners. And I think I should point out again that I'm way ahead of Bobby with Gen Z. I'm the one seven points. I'm at 24. He's at 13. And I'm three points behind him in terms of the general. And I'm not named Kennedy. Um, so what you just said was extremely important, that people can't conceive of massive change. That's very sad 
We're American. Abolition, the passage of the 19th Amendment, the establishment of the labor movement, the civil rights movement. We are the inheritors of the legacy of a country that gets the job done. What has happened to us in the last 50 years, we have been trained to expect too little. We have been trained on a political level to limit our horizons. We have been trained to limit our political imaginations. So when you say, what is the big vision? Well, let's take healthcare, okay? Every other advanced democracy, every other one, plus other countries that are not democracies, have universal healthcare. The fact that we don't have it is not because it's complicated. The fact that we don't have it is because it's corrupt, because of the greed of the insurance industries. That's the only reason and the fact that they have such undue influence in Congress. One in four Americans live with medical debt. What is my vision? That it would be like every other country, like I mentioned, where medical debt does not exist. 1.3 million Americans ration their insulin. What is my vision? An American, like in every other country that has universal health care, where no, where no one rations their insulin, insulin is free. My vision is a country where 68,000 people are not dying every year of lack of health care, where the 18 million Americans who now cannot afford to pay for the prescriptions that their doctors give them have, do not have that problem, where the 85 million uninsured and underinsured Americans don't have that problem. That's my vision. My vision is of a repaired America. My vision is of a country where these kids aren't loaded by over a trillion dollars in in, uh, college loan debt and where we return to what we actually had in this country until the 1970s and which they have in every other advanced democracy, uh, tuition-free college and tech school. My vision is- I'm sorry. Anyway, you get my point. Yeah. So I just want to say I'm sorry. These these positions are moderate positions in every other advanced democracy. And uh, I I saw that you organize a lot of these positions underneath an economic bill of rights, which I think is really interesting. And are there any other pieces of the economic bill of rights that are really stand out that that are above and beyond what other candidates are offering? Well, this business of a guaranteed living wage, I don't think Americans have totally, many Americans, I mean, many Americans have because they're living it. But we need to look at this. The president, for instance, had said that he would raise the living wage, the uh, minimum wage. Our minimum wage is still $7.25. There are a third of America's workforce who lives on less than $15 an hour cannot find a place to live. We had over 3 million evictions last year, which was the same as the height of the housing crisis. We have an eviction crisis. We have a housing crisis. A lot of the, you know, people making, you know, kids have been saying, you know, some of the elite make fun of kids where you're just living in your parents' basement. Do you think they want to? I hear from parents, not just young people complaining about it, parents who say, my child is living at home, doing, working, doing everything they can to save, and they can't move out. There is no place for them. Now, the president had said he would raise the minimum wage, which he did do for federal workers. Then it came time to put it into the COVID relief bill. And you know what stopped him? The parliamentarian. Now, I want to assure you, the Republicans would never allow themselves to be stopped by the parliamentarian. George Bush, when the parliamentarian tried to stop him, fired the parliamentarian. So we now have a situation where in every major city in America, the living wage is over $20 an hour. What are we doing? What are we doing? 
Okay. So Marianne, I want to ask you, since we're talking about wages and um, women have been leaving the workforce uh, because of lack of childcare and other kinds of supports, um, particularly during the pandemic. And in some circles, you know, childcare really is the the piece of the feminist agenda that never was addressed and was and was has never been taken care of. So what would you do with that? First of all, I want to stop and acknowledge something you just said, which I think is very important, which I've been saying for years. A flaw of modern feminism has been a lack of focused attention on the needs of our children. Feminism to me should be as much about protection and care of children as it is about our own rights. Um, so absolutely free childcare. If you look in a, any of the Scandinavian countries, if you, these, this is the kind of thing, by the way, that keeps many people in jobs that are not the jobs they would have had, uh, would have liked to have done, the jobs that they feel they could have self-actualized within the most because they need to do it for the healthcare and they need to do it uh, because otherwise they can't afford the high price of childcare. And that should also going along with that is paid family leave. It is outrageous. Okay. And uh I know that the OECD, the Org- Organization for Economic Co- Cooperation and Development, has talked about um, an economy of well-being, and some interesting countries like Iceland and Scotland and uh, New Zealand have come together to talk about what what we could do to create an economy of well-being that really looks at um, social. Uh, and health, well, in you know, instead of just financial. So, do you follow that? Like, how, where would you be on on sort of re-estab- redefining um, how we talk about the economy? All for it. We now have an economy, and like I said, it's a malevolent strain of capitalism. Once they started talking about trickle-down economics, neoliberalism, hypercapitalism, whatever you want to call it, the idea that short-term profits for huge corporate entities are basically given precedence over the health and the safety and the well-being of the American people. This started, some people say it started in the late 70s, it definitely came on full-blown in the 80s. The Republicans clearly started it. No Democrat, however, has stopped it. To the point that we are not even functioning as a government of the people, by the people, and for the people. We're functioning as a government of the corporations, by the corporations, and for the corporations. And countries like Iceland, which you mentioned, that's why they are the happiest people. That's why their people prosper, because they're not living, the majority of them, in a constant state of economic struggle, high-end serfdom practically, to which the majority of Americans have been relegated. Because we we are not even functioning as a democracy, we're functioning as an oligarchy. And people on the right, as well as the left, are figuring this out. Everything I'm saying right now, which is considered, ooh, so far left here, is moderate common sense in every other part of the advanced world. I'm speaking with Marianne Williamson on The Well Woman Show, and we will be right back. For 25 years, I've been working in social justice and systems change because when women and girls thrive, families thrive and whole communities thrive. What I realized through my work was that there are systems at play that work to keep women leaders functioning at half their capacity because of overwork, overwhelm and burnout. The very nature of our linear strategic systems of power 
that have worked so well for so many high achieving women are the exact reason we're crashing and burning at such high rates. So we end up with highly capable women leaders who are unable to realize their potential, whether it's in their health, their relationships, career, prosperity, or social impact. I'm Giovanna Rossi, host of The Well Woman Show on NPR. And what I do is work with high achieving women leaders who feel stuck in their careers, overwhelmed by trying to do it all, facing a health crisis or unhappy in their relationships so that they can finally enjoy life again, be the leader they know they can be and make the impact they're here to make with their families and communities. It's my mission to use a feminist lens and the Well Woman Life framework to challenge the status quo and dismantle systems that work to maintain unequal power so that all women can thrive as leaders in their communities and families. Get started on your Well Woman leadership journey by applying for the group program at wellwomanlife.com slash academy. I'm back with Marianne Williamson, presidential candidate, spiritual leader, and author, New York Times bestseller. Uh, Marianne, we're going into the final segment here of the show, and I want to ask you a few quick questions. Um, but before I do, I, I do I do actually just want to ask you, um, you are on the campaign trail. How are like are you able to keep up with all of the other things, the writing and the speaking and everything, or is that all on hold while you run for president? Well, my speaking is that I'm on a campaign for president. My writing is all the writing that I'm doing, you know, daily emails that yeah. I write often and, you know, my social media. So I, I'm certainly writing and I'm certainly speaking, but I'm writing and speaking as a presidential candidate, which I certainly is a full-time job. Yeah, that's first and foremost. Okay. Um, what does success in life mean for you? First of all, I think happiness, uh, inner peace, looking in the mirror and feeling you did the best you could do. And when did you know you were really good at what you do? I think you know that you did good. Well, it's, 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 there are different levels of that. Do you mean, get a little more specific for that for me, please. Uh when did you when did you know um, that you were a great speaker and communicator and leader? I do remember. I do remember. I was speaking in Los Angeles to little small groups of people, and I remember one night, and it went from like maybe ten people in a room on Saturdays, and then they asked if I wanted to do Tuesday nights, and and one night probably was 75 people or so. And I went, wow, a lot of people are coming. And I remember thinking, well, uh, I'm not, I'm not perfect. I'm not perfect. And it's almost like I felt the sky open up with laughter. Um, And I got in my heart, no one said you're perfect, but you're honest. And I thought that was, I got that in my heart, you know, Mm. Um, when you write a book, you kind of know in the first 15 minutes whether you have a hit. It's very interesting. That's why people say, how could these polls know? I don't know how they do it, but there is a, there is something. I've seen it with books, and I don't know if I'll be able to, on a material level, override the obvious blocks and obstructions that the machine is putting out. And they are, I mean, places that won't rent to me, vendors that won't work with me because they say yes. And three days later, Oh, I'm sorry, I can't. It's there. 
But I can tell you this, mm. what I'm talking about, it's, uh, it's a vein, hitting a vein. Mm. Whether it's my destiny, that I'm the person who takes that home all the way to the White House, only God can know. But even if all I'm doing is opening the space of greater possibility for someone else who will, that's a success to me, because these things need to be said. So that's so interesting. So you're not clear, I guess, is what you're saying, what the, what your destiny is, but you're, uh, you're on the path of speaking your truth and seeing where the where it falls. You know what someone said to me? Someone told me something recently that I thought was so amazing. Do you know who the most successful tightrope walkers are? People who don't have a net. Mm-hmm. You can't allow yourself to spend a second on the thought that this might work, might not work. You just yeah. have to. Listen, nobody is guaranteed. Look what happened when Hillary Clinton certainly thought hers was guaranteed. There is no guarantee. And certainly nobody thought Trump would ever be president. So it's very unpredictable. And I think those who think that this is just a formulaic season and it's all very predictable what's going to happen are going to be very surprised over the next few months. Mm. Okay. And can you describe a personal habit that contributes to your well-being so you can do everything that you do and keep going all of all hours of the day and night? Meditation. And just curious, how much do you actually meditate? Every morning, you know, I look at meditation like you wake up in the morning, you take a shower, you brush your teeth. You don't want to take yesterday's dirt into the day on your body. If you don't spend some time in reflection, prayer, meditation, whatever you're centering, religious, non-religious, secular, spiritual, whatever, then your nervous system, you're carrying the stress from yesterday. Uh, I try to give myself, in order for me to really feel grounded and my nervous system healthy for the day, I need 20 minutes. Mm. Okay, great. Well, that's we talk a lot about meditation on this show, and um, I, it doesn't surprise me that that is a habit of yours uh, that helps you get through all of what you're doing. What superpower, Marianne, did you discover you had only to realize it was there all the time? Prayer, faith, love, forgiveness. And is it hard to practice that all the time? Try running for president. There's, there's no challenge like it. You wake up every morning to somebody's insult, somebody's lie, somebody's smear, somebody okay. that's a term um, contempt prior to investigation. It's kind of unbelievable. And you are so good at showing others how to stay in love, in positivity, in right thinking. I've never, I've never claimed to be a perfect master. And Nobody in my audience has ever thought I was. The expectation from my audience um, has always been, has never been that I was perfect, but that I was trying my best. And that's why even recent smears against me have been so damaging. Um, it's an old technique. They, yeah. Well, you've, uh, you've inspired so many people. So there is an expectation that you, you know, have this amazing power to like always be uh, loving and positive, but you know, the reality is you are also human and, and it takes work every 
day to keep that projection onto a woman. If if a man fires his campaign manager like Ron DeSantis, he's shaking up his campaign to do better. If I oh, she's such a bitch. Uh, If a man, you know, there's some shake up in the campaign, it's what happens in campaigns. It's no drama different, but they look at mine. Oh, look, you know, all that. Yeah. 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 Okay. Just a couple more questions. Uh, What advice would you give your younger self, say 25 or 30 year old, Marianne? Relax. Enjoy being young. Don't miss it. Life will take care of itself. Be not anxious for tomorrow. Tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Don't miss this. I I feel with a lot of women my age, and not even just my age, we look back on pictures when we were young and go, I thought that was inadequate, right? You look back at pictures and you go, oh my God, I had everything and I just didn't know it. Um. That's part of, partly because of our systems and oppressions. So it's hard for any one individual to overcome that. Yeah. But that is part of the work. That is the work. Um, so I think particularly about youth. youth you, when you're young, you can't really conceive that one day you will no longer be young. You know it abstractly but you don't know it viscerally. It's only when it's over that you wish you had sucked every bit of juice out of the experience and certain juice that you didn't suck out of it. I'm not saying that age doesn't have its own rewards. And Emerson said, as I age, my beauty steals inward. I don't believe that any decade is inherently better because it's just the different aspects of energy and power that you're experiencing. But to a younger person, I'd say, try to enjoy being young. Try to enjoy it. And if you said that to your younger self, would she have listened? Well, it would have depended on who I thought I was talking. Yeah, right. <laughs> okay. Um, and Marianne, you said at one point in, a, in one of your books, I think that dying may be the most fantastic journey a human makes. That what must be? Dying may be the most dying. fantastic, yeah, the process of dying. Can you expand on that and just explain what, what that is? What was the exact line? Dying may be the most fantastic journey any human makes. Well, I don't remember that specific line, but I will say this. Carl Jung said that the failure to deal with the topic of death robs the second half of life of its meaning. Mm. And I do feel that we reach... Probably it happens in the 50s. You start dealing with it. I mean, I took turning 50 very hard. Not everybody I know has, but I did. Because your youth is irrevocably over. And I see a distinct difference between those of us who get that physical mortality has a purpose, that generations come and generations go, that you had your shot at the planetary experience and now others are coming in. Um, And for those of us who have a spiritual perspective, we don't believe that the death of the body is the end of a greater life versus those who live in such fear. Um, There's a big difference psychologically and emotionally. Mm. Um, And if you are at peace with the idea of death, you know, I, it's like when Woody Allen said, I don't mind dying. I just want to be there when it happens. <laughs> Not that he's fun to quote anymore. This feels kind of toxic, doesn't it? Um, 
I have been with enough people in their journey to death. Um, the very idea of the angel of death, surely that would be the most tender angel. So I certainly believe that life is for the living. Hmm. But at my age, and I also think at my age, you're very aware every day that you're that, that you're healthy and it's happening, how fortunate you are. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, I think in this country, we're not really having the the conversations that are needed around. Oh, no, that. we peripheralize it. And it's tragic. It's absolutely tragic. And I see such tragedies in hospitals. And I don't blame doctors because, you know, their oath is to try to keep people alive. And sometimes it's just tragic that they are. It's it's um. It's it's a subject about which societally we are wounded. But I think it's also related to the idea that we talked about earlier that we as humans aren't at the consciousness, at the level of consciousness where we can talk about big change, about death, about things that are outside of our consciousness, right? Well, we're so materially based. And that's really the problem with how we see economics, you, you, how we see the environment, how we see death. It's all related. If you think that the material reality that you can perceive with your physical senses is all that is, then you are in a universe of randomness, devoid of ultimate meaning, in which it is very difficult to find peace. And I think we're pushed into being that way because our basic needs aren't met. If, if we had our basic needs met, we wouldn't need to be running crazy trying to have house, housing and shelter and food. Absolutely. And, yeah, the purpose of money is so that you wouldn't have to think about money. That should be the purpose of money. So that you wouldn't have to think about those things so that you could get about the things that are really important in life. And in those countries that you mentioned earlier, it's not an accident that they're happier. <laughs> right. <laughs> Yeah. Okay. Last couple of questions. Do you identify as a feminist? Yeah. Mm -hmm. What does that mean for you? That I believe that the rights and opportunities of women um, are systemically um, assaulted, um, limited by some forces that are inherent to the way we are socially and politically and economically organized. Um, I also want to say that uh, this is not obviously just about gender. Um, some of the meanest, least feminist women I've uh, people I've known are women. I've been particularly uh, in my political career how how many women I've seen who consider themselves feminists. That stuff doesn't apply when they talk about me. How they and that's the career internalized sexism happening on there. such a level and the other part of that is that when uh, my, the the season of feminism the era of feminism that i grew up in was one in which it was foundational to our understanding that sisterhood was part of this that none of us would get there unless all of us get there and i see this weird brand of feminism the other day, this today that doesn't seem to include taking your sister's hand, uh, defending her, being there to join her. And I, we're not getting there unless unless we reclaim that. Um, so, yeah, there were some fatal flaws in that era. But um, 
I still see myself as a feminist and cringe when women say, I'm not a feminist, but, and then they say these really feminist things. Yeah. Yeah. And how can, can feminism be more inclusive and, and not be just sort of the white well, feminism? Like, well, I would like it to see include more a reclaiming of the open heartedness to other women and also a greater care for children, which you and I talked about earlier. Mm. Okay. And last question, Marianne, what makes a good leader? Someone who holds a space for the brilliance of others. The old paradigm of leadership is very top down. The new paradigm of leadership is, I want to be a space in which you feel moved, inspired, permitted, and invited to contribute your genius, to grow in your talent, skill, and excellence. Mm, Love that. Okay. On that note, uh, thank you so much for being on The Well Woman Show. Thank you. Thank you so much. That's it for our show today. Remember, if you need support to live your Well Woman Life, head over to wellwomanlife.com. As a reminder, we are on NPR every week. So be sure to tune in at npr.org slash podcasts and search for The Well Woman Show. If you enjoyed today's show, please take a moment and subscribe and leave a review. This helps raise visibility, which is super helpful when it comes to producing the show every week. For feedback, comments, or just to let me know you were listening, find me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Well Woman Life. I'm Giovanna Rossi for The Well Woman Show. Until next time, have a super powerful week.